Part Seven of Just Me by Pearl White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But my star soon hid behind a cloud. The company closed, and I went to join a company playing stock in Minneapolis. When I got off the train, I felt pretty bad, and I was sick for two weeks. That was my first introduction to a physician. My father had always believed in home remedies. And when this doctor wanted to cut out my appendix, I decided to take a pullman and go home to father. However, I felt so well when I got to Kansas City that I decided I'd go to New Orleans instead. That was a long trip and cost me a lot of money, but there I went and stayed on a week or more. It was in New Orleans on Canal Street that I saw my first moving picture. Moving pictures had been quite popular for some time then, but somehow I had never seen one. I then joined a troupe. I don't know that it had a regular name, but the company was owned by a man named Al Beasley, who had a wife named Sarah, who was an awfully good sort. I joined them in Biloxi, Mississippi, where I took my first dip in the salt water. We had played to very bad business for three or four weeks, and the company had dwindled down to five people, besides the manager and his wife. But with seven people there were enough plays that we could put on, so we decided to stick together and work on the Commonwealth Plan, which means everybody shares alike in the profits, until fall, when Mr. Beasley had a contract to put a company into the Maryland Theatre in Cumberland, Maryland. Oh, what a time we had reaching there! We were always just one step ahead of the sheriff all the way. We were playing in Scranton, Mississippi, to very good patronage. The theatre was an open-air affair, sitting in a park by the side of the ocean and we stopped up the beach about a quarter of a mile in a great big boarding-house. We were to about Friday of our stay in that town, when an awful storm came up after the night performance. We sat out on the front porch and watched the storm on the ocean, thinking it a beautiful sight. But next morning, when we heard that part of the theatre and some of our trunks had been washed out to sea, we rushed down to view the disaster, and all the beauty went out of our lives. Some of our wardrobe was intact, but a good portion was being battered about in the waves. We rescued all that we could of the wreck, but the missing particles put an awful dent into our outfit. We struggled on for some more weeks and landed in Anniston, Alabama, where business bucked up so well that we each got about two hundred dollars. Fortunately, or unfortunately as it may have been, we ran into a fire sale there. A big clothing store had been partly burned and all the goods slightly damaged, but they were selling their clothing so cheap, and we needed them so badly, that we all spent our money in getting ourselves dressed up in new outfits. We continued on tour, looking fit at least. We could never seem to get more than just enough money to pay our board and get to the next town, but we did have a good night in one other little town in Alabama. We were doing what they call in the show business, wildcatting which means booking your show as you go along and playing anywhere at all. We arrived in this little town, I've forgotten its name, and there didn't seem to be more than a dozen houses along with a drug store, grocery store, and post office. There wasn't even an hotel. We were to play in the schoolhouse about a mile from the station. We got some crackers and sardines from the village grocer and ate them on the steps. This was our dinner. Then, with our clothes and makeup in our handbags, we started for the opery. 
the bell on said opery or schoolhouse started ringing at about seven thirty and continued for an hour that is how the farmers were notified that a show was in town this house was in the woods and where the people came from i know not but by a quarter to nine the house was packed at a dollar and a half a shot this was our last successful town and we finally got so bad that we had to have our fare advanced by the theatre in the next town in which we were to play still we stuck together until we went absolutely on the rocks then sarah dug down somewhere and got enough pennies to take us into cumberland we enlarged our troupe and played to very good business for a few weeks but the man who owned the theatre was very enthusiastic about running moving pictures in the theatre instead of a stock company so we had to quit now helene hamilton was a woman in our company who had been in new york many times and she told me that was the place for me because the season was just starting it was then september so to new york i came armed with a list of managers names and the address of a rooming house on eighty eighth street i dressed myself in a green velvet suit and a large hat trimmed with a bunch of artificial grapes that i had picked up at the fire sale in anniston they were a little faded when i drew them so i carefully gilded them with gold paint and allow me to say that that hat was certainly a dream to me then but as i remember it now it was awfully comic i landed on the jersey side and came across the twenty-third street ferry the same place that i take the boat for the studio each morning now i got a room for three dollars a week and for two days spent my time going to shows i saw several broadway stars in different plays and awoke to the fact that in a new york company i would be willing to take a very small part and forget my one-night stand stardom in fact i would have given my soul to play on broadway but evidently no manager wanted either that or my services for i fought my way into the big producers offices i even got to see charles froman himself but a job on broadway i couldn't get so as i was never for sitting idle i took a job with a stock company playing a month in asbury park then five months in south norwalk connecticut about the end of january my voice began to go bad i was playing in a lot of bloody melodramas and i guess reaching the old-time rip-roaring climaxes caused me to strain my vocal cords a woman who had played in pictures came in from new york one week to play an engagement with our company she suggested that i try pictures and give my voice a rest she gave me a list of the different companies and their addresses now moving pictures held no fascination for me but i decided that i would try to get a little work in some of the studios until my voice got better i gave my notice to the company and on tuesday of my finishing week i came to new york and started out to find a job in the movies the first studio on my list was edison the directions read take third avenue elevated to the end get off walk down the stairs and you can easily find the studio about a block away now the third avenue elevated is a long line and of course i didn't stop to figure that there were two ends so naturally i took the wrong one i must have gotten a downtown train and landed way down at the brooklyn bridge where i spent the afternoon searching for said edison studio eventually i found out that it was on the uptown end way up in the bronx but i had to get back to south norwalk so i called it a day 
I came back again on Thursday and took the second studio on the list, Calum, 19th Street. Mr. Theodore Wharton was the head director there at that time, so I got an audience with him, and he asked from whence I came. I told him I was playing in South Norwalk, but my voice by now was almost a whisper, and he didn't believe my story. He directed me several years afterward in the exploits of Elaine. Then he told me that at our first meeting he had taken me to be just a girl from a little upstate town who wanted to become an actress. But he said that something in my personality, for some reason or other, made him want to help and advise me. So that day, there in his office on 19th Street, he told me that I should go back to my home, because that any part of the theatrical profession was a tough game to buck, and a whole lot of other fatherly advice stuff. I sat tight that day and let him rave on. I probably had seen more hard knocks in show business than he ever had. Anyway, I didn't want to spoil his illusion, so I played up the situation and promised that I'd go back home to my folks. Again, I came to New York on Friday and tackled the third on the list, Powers, 241st Street. That was a long drill on the subway and surface cars, but I finally reached there, and the director, Joseph A. Golden, took me seriously and told me he could give me a try at $5 a day, and that I could start working the following Monday. So back to South Norwalk I went, packed up my goods, and came to New York to stay. I did my first picture in two days. They were only doing one-reel pictures then, and they gave me a steady engagement at $30 a week. I had gone on about three weeks before I saw my first picture on the screen. Oh, what a sensation that is! Up until that time I had a mental picture of myself that was quite good-looking. But when I got a flash of myself as I was, and as others saw me, I nearly died. I was so disheartened that I walked out of the studio and disappeared for three or four days. If it hadn't been that I was in the middle of a picture and they wanted me to finish it, that would probably have been my last appearance on the screen. Anyway, they needed me for the finishing scenes, so they discovered my whereabouts and lured me back to the studio, saying that with a little making over they were sure I would turn out all right. I soon disposed of my small waistline and big pompadour and changed my entire scheme of dressing to more simple styles. I also found that light hair photographed better than dark. So I began to get the dye out of mine, which was quite a difficult task. And for quite a few weeks I carried around a head of hair that bore a scotch plaid effect. I worked with Powers for about six months, intending all the time to go back on the stage when my voice got all right. The voice eventually did come back to its full strength, but I didn't go back on the stage. Instead, I used it to good advantage talking myself into a better job. I left Powers and went to the Lubin Company in Philadelphia for three times my former salary. At that time, Florence Lawrence and Arthur Johnson were the stars of the Lubin Company. In fact, I think they were about the first people to reach stardom in the entire picture business. I was to play secondary parts. I don't know just what it was, whether I was too good or too bad. Anyway, Miss Lawrence refused to work with me, so that they put me in other pictures in which I played leading parts. However, I didn't get on well there and only lasted about two months. 
I came back to New York, drifted over to the Pate Ferrer in Jersey City, and asked to see the casting director. A tall, thin man walked out to interview me, and I recognized him as being Mr. Theodore Wharton, the same man who had given me the fatherly advice some months before at the Calum studio. But this time he advised me in a different manner. I think you are just the girl we need in this company, he said and he led me into the office of the head of the firm, Mr. Louis Gasnier, who at that time spoke no English at all. I had to stand on exhibition before him and another Frenchman, who began criticizing me in their native tongue. Then, through an interpreter, they asked me to take off my hat, take down my hair, turn first profile, then front face, then go through a routine of different expressions with my face, while they discussed me in their own language of which i understood nothing i felt like one of the slaves being sold on the auction block in uncle tom's cabin anyway they must have decided for the best and i started next day with henry walthall playing opposite me i worked on for about six months with mr gasnier as my director at first it was pretty tough to act through translation, but finally I got used to that, and we got along so well that I was perfectly sorry to leave Pate for a better offer. However, the Crystal Moving Picture Company came along, and offered me so much more money that my Jewish instinct forced me to pack up my things and leave behind the emotional and dramatic parts that I had been playing in Jersey. I became chief pie-slinger in the crystal slapstick comedies. I don't know why, but all through my career I have had to change my line of parts in every company that I have worked for. Be that as it may, I was getting a very good salary, and also was being advertised enough, so that I began to become known to the public. It was then that I began to receive letters from the fans asking for photographs, etc., it is really marvelous how many people who see pictures write letters to the players, and by the way, that is one of the greatest mediums through which we can judge our popularity. Actors in the theater can only play at one place at a time. Therefore, they are seen by comparatively few people each night. While we of the cinema can be playing in thousands of places all over the world at the same time, therefore our audience is a million times larger. I don't suppose that during my entire stage career I ever received over a dozen letters of appreciation from admirers, and they were more or less of the mash-note type. So the first letters I received through my picture work were indeed highly prized by me, and even today, although I don't have time to read them all, I should be heartbroken if they ceased, because the bundles of letters that are handed to me each day cheer me on a whole lot. It is really marvelous to get letters from all the different countries, and most of the ones I receive are just nice letters telling me that they like me, etc., and generally asking for a photograph or autograph to be sent to them in every corner of the globe. Even from faraway places like Iceland, Siam, Finland, Guatemala, the colonies of South Africa, etc., I receive as many as 10,000 letters a month. This sounds almost unbelievable that so many people would take the time, and even expense, for a great many send me presents, too. However, it is true, and I suppose there are artists in the moving pictures who receive more than I. The money spent in sending photographs by us, if massed together, would make a large fortune.
End of part seven.